Hi, I'm Andrew, and I'll be reading Luke 1 to 7. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him, and the Pharisees and scribes were complaining. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man among you who has 100 sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he has found it, he joyously puts it on his shoulders, and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need repentance. Or what woman who has ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she finds it, she calls her women friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found the silver coin I lost. I tell you, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. He also said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the youngest son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate on foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the carob pods the pigs were eating, but no one would give him any. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food, and I am dying of hunger? I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his slaves, Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast, because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he, was, so he summoned one of the servants and asked what, the, what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him. And your father had slaughtered the fattened calf because he has, um, because he has him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I have been slaving many years for you, and I have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Son, he said to him, You were always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Good evening, everyone. Um, I'm Chris. Uh, there are three stories. Uh, are they brand new to any of you? You heard them before? It's a bit of a nod. And, and I know what's going through your mind. You're thinking, is that a trick question? Is he going to go point to someone and say, can you tell us what the stories are about? Or, I'm not going to. It's okay. Don't panic. Um, but they're familiar. And the trouble with familiar stories is that sometimes we actually miss what's in the stories uh, because they're so familiar. Um, so what I want to do is just spend a little bit of time 
And maybe I'll just be reminding you of what you already know. Um, but that, that's okay. I hope, though, that maybe something that's there that you haven't noticed before will jump off the page at you and go, look at this. Isn't this worth noting? Um, so I hope that's your experience. I, I want to do three things. Uh, I've got three points, a three-point sermon. Uh, yes, I went to more college. Hooray. And uh, so I've got three points, but they don't all start with the same letter. Uh, there's one thing we need to know about the passage that's really important that will help us to understand it. Then there are two things that I think we need to learn about God before we discuss three things that we should take away. Okay, one thing about the passage, two things about God, three things as a takeaway for us. So the first thing is about the passage, the context. You see, what we tend to do, particularly with these stories, and particularly with a story about the two sons, is we love to gently lift it out of chapter 15 and put it into a children's picture book and say, there's a lovely story for the boys and girls, isn't it? It's so nice. There was a, a son who was all nasty to his dad and he ran away and blew the lot. And there was another son. Well, actually, I feel sorry for that second son. He hardly ever gets into the children's picture book. He's usually dropped off and it's only the first son that gets any attention given to him. There were two sons. There are two brothers in that story. One who went off and wasted money and the other one who stayed at home. But we lift it out of its context and we kind of miss what's going on. And why it's there, which is interesting in Luke's gospel of any of the stories, any of the gospels we've got, because Luke is the writer who said right at the very beginning of his book, I've taken careful attention to get all the details so you have an accurate account of these things that have been taking place. I want you to know, here's the detail. And then he lays it out carefully. What do we do? We pull it out and we plonk it into a picture book. So what I'd like to do is just locate it. The context is the first thing. We need to be clear on that. And if you've got a Bible in front of you, and if it's open at Luke, I think it was page, my, my page is different. Someone want to call out for me the number? I can't hear that. 962, thank you very much. 962, that's chapter 15. Flip back to chapter 13, the big one three on the page. And you'll see in verse 10... One of the things that Luke does, he's been doing it already, but here in chapter 13, in verse 10, we'll grab one that's nearby, where he says it was on the Sabbath. Here's something that was happening on the Sabbath that's worth mentioning because it gets attention. And what happens is this. Jesus goes to synagogue on the Sabbath, nothing unusual about that. But what he does is there's a woman who is crippled. And one of the signs that the kingdom of God is coming is that the anointed one will come and he will let the lame walk and the blind see and the deaf will have their ears open and there are and, and, and there will be healings and miracles. Jesus goes to synagogue on this Sabbath and there's a lady who's crippled and what does he do? He heals her. And what does the, everybody at church do that day? They cheer! Fantastic! No, they don't. They go, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. It's the Sabbath. You can't, that's like working. You're working on a Sabbath. What do you think you're doing? And instead of seeing that the kingdom is coming, they want to say, no, 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 no. All good that the kingdom might be coming, but it's got to come the way we believe it's going to come. That's very important for understanding the context of these stories. They have got a very narrow view. 
And if you go on into chapter 14, you see that Jesus, it's a Sabbath again, chapter 14, verse 1. Remember, Luke is, is pinning things to different days so you know what's going on. Here in chapter 14, it's a Sabbath. Jesus goes to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee. Now, if you've been around church for a long time, you'll know the Pharisees are the bad guys. If this was pantomime and the Pharisees came on, everyone would hold up a, a card going, boo, boo for the Pharisees, they're the baddies. Just flip back a little, chapter 13, verse 31, just in case you've got that view of Pharisees. Because in verse 31, it says, at that time some Pharisees came and they said to him, you need to get out of here. You, you need to go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. They're trying to protect Jesus. They're trying, the Pharisees are trying to save him. He's friends with the Pharisees. You know how we know he's, that he's a friend of the Pharisees? The next, the next Sabbath day, he goes to eat with the Pharisee, a prominent Pharisee. You do not get to eat in the house of a Pharisee unless you are a friend of a Pharisee. It's the only way you'll be invited in. And this Pharisee was obviously one who was of significant note in the community, to be known as a prominent Pharisee. Pharisees, it wasn't um, a profession. Pharisees were lay people. It was more a political movement, but it held to strong religious views. Some priests were Pharisees as well, so they kind of were professional uh, politicians. But usually they were just members of the community. This one, a prominent member of the community. And he's a member of the Pharisee group. Very strict on what you can and can't do. A friend of Jesus invites him in. And what Jesus notices at this meal put on in this guy's house is that the people rush to the front. Very unusual in an Anglican church to have people rushing to the front. In fact, if you need a seat at the back, there are plenty down the front. Not always the way at a Jewish festival. They would go to the front. They would want to be seen, especially with this prominent Pharisee. Get seen with him, get connected into the society. Be seen with him and maybe some righteousness will rub off on you. And what Jesus says is rather than run to the front, what you need to do is you need to invite the people that are outside, the people that have been excluded, the people that have been left out. Why don't you bring them in and give them honour? Why don't you honour them by inviting them in and eat with them? He even then tells a story in chapter 14. He's talking about what the kingdom, the kingdom, remember, that he's bringing in, is going to be like. i tell you what it's going to be like. A banquet, a feast. And there are going to be people who are at that feast, people who are invited by God to come in. He will eat with them. And guess what? They're not the people you might expect. They're not the people you might expect. In fact, Jesus encourages them to go out and invite those people that you wouldn't expect to come and eat with them, to join in, to be included, to be involved, be invited. That's chapter 14. And then he says, of course, I do realize that what I'm doing is I'm asking you to turn your cultural and social values on their head. I know your religion. Jesus grew up as a Jewish man. He knows, he understands entirely that what he is doing is to take their culture and their values and to completely reverse them. It's no small thing. 
to have your culture, your values tipped on their head. It's very easy when you're sitting in a church on a Sunday night. But let me tell you, when you, um, when you face something where your cultural values are ignored or challenged, it's really hard. For a few years, we lived in Belgium. And it was um, one of the requirements of living in Brussels was you needed to go and report uh, to the local council, the commune. And I, I had to go down there to get my driver's license. The good thing is I didn't have to do a test. All I needed to do is hand over my Australian one. They would give me a Belgian one. That was easy. I took in my New South Wales driver's license. And, of course, they were looking for the word Australia, which doesn't appear on a New South Wales driver's license. But that's I said, it's okay, because in Australia, we're a federated commonwealth of states. We're all part of one happy family, and this is an Australian driver's license, to which they said, not good enough. And I said, no, 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 it is, it is good enough. Um, or if you check with the Australian authorities, not good enough. I said, well, in Australia, that would be good enough. And they said, but, sir, you are not in Australia. And when you face that, it's awkward. Jesus knew that what he was saying was your values need to be tipped on their head. It's going to be hard if you want to follow Jesus. You young three people down the front, it's going to be hard to follow Jesus. Lots of cultural values. The way the world goes, the things that the world values and the things that are before you in so many ways, Jesus says, you know what? Say no to them because I want you to say yes to me. I want you to live my way, not the way the world is going. That's easy when you've got a church full of people saying yes, but it's really hard when you're out there on your own. And so Jesus says, it's hard, it's a big cost, but it's worth it. And then he says, right at the end of chapter 14, do you have ears to hear because I'm inviting everyone into this. This is not exclusively for Jewish people. This kingdom is for everybody. Just as Abraham, your father, was promised that it would be to all the nations, it is to all the nations. So invite them in. It's not just for good people. This is for all people. Do you hear? Notice that? Verse, what is it? Uh, 35 of chapter 14. Do you hear? Do you listen to this? Then chapter 15, verse 1. The tax collectors and sinners, they're the ones that were listening. It's a shame that 15's been put in there, actually. I, I mean, I admire the work that the people who put the numbers in did. That's a big job. And I'm thankful because it makes it easy to find things. But that one's in the wrong spot. Because you've got to see the connection. Jesus is saying to the crowd, if you've got ears to hear, if you can listen to this, listen. And the tax collectors and the sinners were listening. The outsiders were the ones who were paying attention. It was the outsiders who heard what Jesus was saying about coming in. And it was the people who thought they were in who went, wait a minute, verse 2. This man, he's welcoming sinners. He eats with them. What? Remember there's three points this, this evening? First one is this context. These stories rely on this. I've got a slide just to help you see if you can remember those. I'll give you a couple of seconds. Can you turn it off? Now, does anybody remember them? Oh, they're still up. <laughs> see if you can memorize them. You see, one of the things I learned uh, when I studied 
many, many years ago when I was doing psychology, a psychology course, was that um, if you try to remember a lot of things like that, it's hard. But if you break it down into threes, what's on the board is um, AEC, FBI, CIA, AUS for Australia, USA for the other place, ANZ, IBM, GBP, and ARV. Oh, and WHO, World Health Organization. If you break it into three, into triplets, it's much easier to remember. The first thing I ask you to remember is the context. You need to understand that Jesus is inviting people in. Now let's go to the second thing. We need to learn something about God. It's very tempting to go to this next story and the one after it and the one after it and insert myself in. Let's not do that. Let's see what it's telling us about God. The first story is about a shepherd. I've got a photo of a shepherd, a Bedouin shepherd, taken in, well, it's on the road down from Jerusalem uh, down towards um, the Jordan River. And this Bedouin is looking after what is a normal size flock of sheep. There are goats in there as well. Um, I, but even though I went to James Roos and studied agriculture for six years, I have no idea which ones are sheep and which ones are goats because they all look the same. That's because they're different to the ones I grew up on uh, studying. But never mind, that is a normal size. Did you read in chapter 15? This shepherd has how many sheep? He's got 100. He's got 100 sheep and he loses just one. My friend Colin is a farmer in South Australia in a place called Oruru. He has many, many sheep. And if he loses one, you know what he does? He doesn't even know. (laughs) Colin has no idea when one goes missing. I said to him, Colin, but the good shepherd knows the name of each sheep. And he says, yeah, all mine are named. Stupid. That one's stupid. That one's stupid. Isn't that cruel? Sheep have little brains. None of them have ever been offended to my knowledge. But these sheep, these sheep are known by name and they're in a small group. This one in the story, he has a hundred sheep. He loses one. A 1% loss is not significant and you can cope with it. But this shepherd, even with a 1% loss, decides to go and find it. He goes and he seeks the missing sheep. And he finds the missing sheep and he puts it on his shoulders and he comes back and he gets all his friends together and he rejoices. Second story, can we have the next picture? The second story is about a lady who loses a coin. There's another Bedouin lady. Now, I don't know if the lady in the story um, has got coins like this lady. But this is a story, so I can stretch it a bit. I'm allowed to do that. I'm evangelistic. And so what happens is a Bedouin woman gets a coin once they're married for all the significant things in the marriage. It's a nice way. I think it's much better than buying rings, by the way, because they're cheaper. But... um, but because they're also a way of displaying all the wonderful things that a husband has done for his wife. So one might be the birth of a child, another one might be um, an anniversary that was significant. And the women wear the coins as a sign, a reminder of all the wonderful things in their marriage and relationship. What often happens, I'm told, is that if a woman like this has a lover... She takes the coin, one of the coins, and gives it to her lover as a kind of a trinket, a keepsake, a little bit of a deal between the two of them. If you're not having an affair and you lose a coin, 
and your husband notices, you're in trouble. In that culture, adultery can be dealt with by stoning. Can you understand why this woman might be looking for one coin that she's lost? Now, I don't know if she was wearing it on a veil. I don't know that. It may be just because it's worth a day's wages that she's looking for it. She's lost it, and she does everything. She turns the house upside down to find it. Because can you imagine how embarrassing not only would it be to have lost the coin, but then for your friend to find, you haven't got the coin. Or for your husband to find, where is the coin? be terrible but she finds the coin and that's why she gets in touch with her friends and says come girl, come here i found the coin look i'm not doing anything wrong look at this it's found and there's great rejoicing two things you learn about god one he is a god who seeks he's not a god who is happy that any should be lost what's the context of this story jesus is saying the kingdom is open to everyone god is not happy that any should be left out God is a God who seeks after those who are lost, even those who are listening to this. Who had ears to listen? Tax collectors and sinners, the people who are excluded by the Pharisees. Tax collectors, they are so far out. To be a tax collector at the time of Jesus, the way it worked was this. You paid a lump of money to the Romans and then you were basically given permission to go and recoup that money any way you liked from the group of people you're responsible for. The only way someone could raise enough money to do that was usually to, to be a swindler or, or to steal it. No wonder they were hated. No wonder they were excluded. Because what they did was they'd give, say, a million dollars to the Romans, then they'd go and collect two million dollars from the people. And Rome would help them. The Jews hated them. The Mishnah, which is rabbinic teaching, says that you must obey the Ten Commandments. You must not bear false witness against your neighbor unless they're a tax collector. Then you can lie to their face. That's in the rabbinic teaching, not in the Bible. But, but that's how despised they were. And Jesus says these two stories so that outsiders, even tax collectors, will know they can come in. They're welcome in. And then there's a the story of the two sons. For in this story, there is a father who seeks his sons. The one who who really does the dirty, sells everything and runs off and blows the lot, the father waits for him to come back. And when he sees him coming, the God who seeks races out, embraces him and brings him in. The second thing we learn about God is a God who rejoices at repentance. When the farmer finds the sheep, when the woman finds the coin, when the father sees his son come home, what does he do? He rejoices. There is a party. Tonight, I'm going to ask the confirmees. The very first question I'm going to ask them is, do you follow Christ? And they're going to say, I turn to Christ. The second question I'm going to ask them is, do you repent of your sins? And then they're going to say, I repent of my sins. And at no confirmation service that I've done, and I've done a lot, at not one has a congregation ever gone, yay! Ever. But in heaven they do. It's not like the archangel Michael and Gabriel are sitting up there and somebody repents and Michael goes, hey, Gabriel, another one's repented. And he goes, beauty, give me my trumpet. They're repenting. It's not like that. There is joy in heaven when people repent. That's what God is like. 
He seeks those who are lost and he takes great delight when they repent of their sins. That's why it's such a joy that these three want to stand up in front of us and say, that's what we're doing. We're following Jesus. We've come in and we repent of our sins. There was another brother in the story. He stayed behind and he said all along, I'm doing the right thing. I've done the right thing. And what do I get? You've never given me anything. There's never been a party for me. All these years I've been here, nothing. What's that teach us? Three things about us. That's what it does. The first one is, I think we need to recognize that being involved and included is so significant. As God's people, to be like God, we need to say, come in, welcome. Confirmation is a confirmation of baptism promises. If you're a godparent or a parent and you've come along tonight and you think you're off the hook because they're getting up and taking it on for themselves, wrong. You've still got to pray for them, support them, love them and help them. But here's the thing. They're standing up and saying, we want to follow Jesus and we want to be included in what this church is doing in the world, in the community. We want to be involved with you in fellowship, in partnership with you. We want to be involved, included inside. That's what we want. That's the first thing I think we need to take away from these stories. The second thing we need to take away is beware. There are two brothers. Can we put up the next picture? This is a painting of Rembrandt as the prodigal son. It's a self-portrait. It's Rembrandt with his wife, Saskia, who at some stages wasn't his wife, but we won't go there. Rembrandt painted this because he recognized in himself the spirit of the prodigal son who ran away and blew the lot. That's one of the paintings that he did. There's another one. Can we have the next one? That's another Rembrandt painting called The Prodigal. And in this painting, it's the father receiving the son back. Rembrandt is in that painting too. But he puts himself in the background. The interesting thing with this painting is the hands of the father, one is very feminine and one is very masculine. And what Rembrandt wanted to say through the painting was that God is a father who brings you back. And if you've had a bad experience of what a father is, it doesn't matter when it comes to God. For he embraces all that it is to care for and bring you in and to love you. The first thing we need to take away from this is involvement and inclusion. The invitation that God gives is given to us. Therefore, be involved. The second is, there are two brothers in this story. And you'll be one of them. You might be the one that has blown the lot and you've run away from God and you've ignored him and you lived the life that you know was wrong, but you've been out there and you're thinking, how could I ever go back? That painting, he welcomes you back. You might also be the other brother that was sitting there saying, I've been doing the right thing all along. Well, God invites you back too. In fact, the story ends with him being invited in. Come in and celebrate. We don't know whether he did or not. But you'll be one of the brothers. That's the, that's the second thing for us to learn. And the third thing for us to learn is this is great news. That God would invite us in. That God would welcome us back. That God would forgive us and rejoice when we, we repent. It's the best news. It is the best news. So why don't we talk about it? What stops us? 
My son, Tim, got engaged last Saturday. It's absolutely exciting. The day, there hasn't been a day this week when I haven't told somebody, oh, dear, my son, he, he got engaged. They generally say, yeah, I saw it on Facebook. But that doesn't stop me from telling them the story. Just because they've seen it, I'm still telling everybody, it's great news. We can be evangelists for whatever excites us. Why is it we find it hard to talk about this? Is it because this doesn't excite us? Is it because we've become so used to these stories that we don't realize what God is doing here? Do you have ears to hear? Listen to this. God welcomes us back no matter where we are, whichever brother we are. He invites us in to be included in. There's the three lessons. They start with IBM, by the way, just so you'll remember. You know, memorizing the thing, it's always hard. Three things, IBM, included. You're going to be one of the brothers. Why don't you mention this? that's excited you? Why don't you mention it to someone this week? In the confirmation service, that's exactly what I ask confirmees to do. I ask them to tell others what Jesus means to them and what he has done for them. And to do it by the way they live and by what they say. Let's, let's actually turn to the confirmation service because if you're going to be confirmed, these stories are really relevant for you. For in these stories, there's the invitation to come in. There's a recognition that you're one of those brothers, but it doesn't matter because God has embraced you. When you repent, he brings you into his home. He brings you into his family and there's great rejoicing. And so I'm going to ask each of you, if you turn to Christ and if you repent of your sins, these are the promises that were made at your baptism or that you're going to make tonight. You're going to accept them as your own. And so, Annalisa, do you turn to Christ? Very good. Freddie, do you turn to Christ? Andrew, do you turn to Christ? Hey, absolutely. That's what's happening in heaven. And you've just become a sermon illustration. That is so good. Do you repent of your sins? Do you renounce evil? Well, I'm going to ask you to profess before God and the church what you believe and your faith in the Christian, the Christian faith. We're going to do that by saying the Apostles' Creed. Can I ask everyone to stand? We'll say it together as we stand. Together, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Please take a seat. Will you, with God's help, strive to keep his holy will and commandments and serve him faithfully 
throughout your life. Well, you've heard these, our brothers and our sister, respond to God's call to love and to serve him. Will you support them in this high calling? Excellent. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Please take a seat. Almighty and ever-living God, you've been pleased to grant to your servants new birth by water and the Holy Spirit, and you've given them forgiveness of their sins. Strengthen them, we pray, with the Holy Spirit. Grant that they may grow in grace and give them a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of discernment and inner strength, a spirit of knowledge and true godliness, and fill them, Father, with wonder and awe in your presence, now and forever. Amen. Andrew, would you like to come out? If you'd like to lean over, Paul. Andrew Bruce Emery, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. We receive you into the congregation of Christ's flock, and I'm going to sign you with the sign of a cross to show that you'll not be ashamed to confess the faith of Christ crucified, and you'll fight bravely under his banner against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And you'll continue as Christ's faithful servant until his life's end, until your life's end. Amen. If you're here uh, with Andrew, would you like to stand? Maybe a parent, godparent, friend, family, please stand. I'm going to pray for him. Let's pray together. Defend, O Lord, your servant Andrew with your heavenly grace, that he may continue yours forever and each day increase in your Holy Spirit until he comes to your everlasting kingdom. Amen.